This is Jenny Allen, and you are listening to the Made for This podcast. Bibles, we're going to be in 1 Thessalonians 4 today. And before I read that, I want to set up kind of where I've been recently because I bet a lot of you can relate. So we're homeschooling. I'm working around the clock still. In fact, my kids said the other day, they were like, mom, why are you and dad working so much? And we were like, but we're not working any more than normal. You just never see us work. You're usually at school. So, so it's hard. We're juggling a lot with relationships and four kids home. And and some of you are in the exact same boat. Even if you're single, you're likely juggling work and connecting with friends via Zoom and all the different things. It just feels like a unique moment where life feels a little bit chaotic. And in some ways, there have been days that this has really been delightful, that I've had a ball and I'm so glad to have my kids home. But I would say recently, you know, we're approaching three weeks now and we're all just kind of done. We're all just kind of finished. And so specifically a couple days ago, I had such an anxiety day. Like I couldn't, my heart wouldn't calm down. I was just, uh, I just wanted it to be over. All I wanted to do was like grab my kids and go see a movie or go to the mall, like just be in public somewhere. And of course that's not a reality. And I noticed after that day, like just this general shift and decline into cynicism and into just being, I don't know, just bugged. And apparently the same timing for all my kids and my husband, we all just were on edge with each other. And I remember, honestly, this was yesterday morning. I sat down with Cooper, my youngest, who's 11. And he had had just the worst days of us all the day before and had broken down and gotten angry several times. And I sat down with him and in preaching to him, I realized this was really for me. And I said, buddy, let's talk about where you are and what you've been going through. And he's like, mom, I'm just so mad. I'm so mad I can't go to school. I'm so angry that I can't be with my friends. And I just, I'm just mad. And I said, okay, what's that look like to trust Jesus in this? And he was like, I don't know. I've been talking to him and he is not talking back and he is not saying anything. And I'm just getting more mad. And and how do you know if God hears you? And how do you know if he cares? And I said, you know what? You open this book and this book is his word and his voice to you. And so we're going to do that right now. And honestly, since that conversation with him, he's been in a better mood. I've been in a better mood. It just, it shifted for me. And I want and pray that it will shift for you too. And the ways that it shifted, I'm going to say really practically, the ways that it shifted is not how you would expect. It wasn't in anything being solved. It wasn't in these big dramatic moments, even in our prayer life and in those moments with Cooper. How it's changed is like this. This morning, I got a text from a friend and she picked up my favorite tea. It was mixed with lemonade and tea. It was something that was no big deal on a given day. But today I almost cried that she was bringing me that tea. After that, I wiped down my counters. I used Windex, y'all. Like my counters are sparkling right now. And it wasn't because anybody was coming over, obviously. It was just because they needed to be wiped down for my family because I was losing my mind. And as I wiped them down, I had bought these flowers the other day at Target when I had gone in for groceries and they were sitting there. And as my counters like started sparkling, I turned on music and I looked at the flower and this is the verse that came to mind. And it's what I wanna talk about today because I believe it's how we're going to delight in this season. First Thessalonians four, I'm gonna read you an interesting verse and it's not gonna sound like it's about delight, but it's about delight, so hang on. Paul is writing to the Thessalonians and he's encouraging them and saying, hey, you're good at loving each other. Keep on loving each other. Keep on obeying God. Don't give up. For some reason, they were discouraged and Paul is speaking to them and encouraging them and saying, hey, don't quit. Keep following God and keep loving each other well. And then he has this interesting verse and some of you have heard it. 
He says, and I urge you brothers to do this more and more, to love each other more and more and to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs. Another version says to mind your own business and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. So what he's saying is as we are making dinner, as we are doing our to-do list, as we are putting our heads down and windexing our counters and, and feeding ourselves and feeding our kids and taking our walks, guys, this is the work of the kingdom. And I know this is hard to believe because we are such doers. We are such achievers. We want to accomplish things. And this is not a moment where we get to experience that satisfaction most days. We don't feel like we're accomplishing much. But what God wants more than your accomplishment is he wants a relationship with you. He wants to delight over you. He wants, while I'm sitting there wiping the counters, I actually teared up being with Jesus while I wipe the counters and looking at the flowers that I had on my counter and realizing like how blessed I am, how much God loves me, how carefully he is caring for me and how he is meeting with me in the most random mundane moments of life. It's not on stages. It's not while I'm writing a great book. It's while I'm freaking Windexing my counter. He is with me and he is meeting with me. And that is our delight. And when we find our delight in him, guys, it doesn't matter what circumstance we're in. It doesn't matter what fire we are facing. It does not matter what comfort we are losing. Our delight cannot be taken from us. So that's the sermon I also gave Cooper. I said, buddy, you wanna know what happiness is? It's not putting it on any other thing on this earth. It's being with Jesus. And, and so I said, hey buddy, I want you right now. I just want you to talk to him right now. And he was like, right now, I'm just gonna go in my room. I'm not gonna talk to him right now. And we pray together all the time and he's pretty good at it. But I think it just felt so vulnerable to him to really talk to God about what was going on with him. And so he said it, he said, God, I don't wanna be angry anymore. I don't know how to stop. Will you help me? He prayed the most vulnerable, real prayer. And in that moment, I'm telling you, his whole demeanor changed. And I said, buddy, what do you feel like God's saying back to you? Think about the scriptures. You know a lot of them. Like, what do you think God would be saying back to you right now? And he said, I think he'd be saying he loves me a lot and that he's with me and he's going to help me. Guys, this is a relationship with God. And I spelled it out for my kid and I want to spell it out for you. It is not something complicated. It's as we are going in our day, even though right now it feels like Groundhog Day, it feels like every single day is the exact same and we're doing the same cooking and the same, you know, lonely Zooming and the same work in front of our computers. God is with us and putting our head down and minding our business and doing work with our hands is pleasing to him. It's pleasing to him. We don't need to do great things to matter. We have a great God that tells us we matter and we cannot lose that. That cannot be taken away from us. So this week, I pray you will delight. Enjoy God's delight over you. Delight in the mundane things we get to do with our lives delight in even suffering that may be a part of our lives right now. I pray that wherever you find yourselves that you talk to him, that you'd say, God, this is what I'm feeling. This is what I need. And, and you listen back and, and read this book and hear what he has to say to us back. He's with us. He loves us. In this moment in time, it's not an accident. It's not an accident. He didn't turn his eye and all of a sudden the world's falling apart. He knew and he has a plan for it and we'll miss it if we look for something more important to do with our lives. Delight, it's a funny theme in the midst of a lot of suffering, but I believe it's exactly where God wants us. 
Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were born or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn man back into dust and say, return, O children of men. For a thousand years in your sight and like yesterday when it passes by or as a watch in the night. So teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. Oh, satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Make us glad according to the days you have afflicted us. In the years we have seen evil, let your work appear to your servants and your majesty to our children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and confirm for us the work of our hands. If I should say my foot has slipped, your loving kindness, O Lord, will hold me up. When my anxious thoughts multiply within me, your consolations delight my soul. I shall remember the deeds of the Lord. Surely I will remember your wonders of old. I will meditate on all your work and ponder on your deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? Our God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth give way and though the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride, for the Lord is in our midst, we will not be shaken. O Lord, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me and the light around me will be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. And the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. And this is my comfort in my affliction, that your word has revived me. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also rejoice in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Now, to Him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. Hey, we hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Made for This podcast. Before you get off today, I have a special surprise for you. 
I know in this season, no matter where you are, if you find yourself at home with a lot of extra time on your hands or you're out on the front lines of this coronavirus pandemic, we are praying for each of you that this season would be fruitful and that God would meet you right where you are. So many of you have been reading Get Out of Your Head and it has been just helpful for all of us navigating this new season we're in. So I thought as a special thank you, we would put the first two chapters of the audiobook of Get out of your head here on the podcast for you to listen to. So maybe this is the second time you will have listened to it. But for those of you who are new around here, I hope that these first two chapters are an encouragement to you. And we'll make sure to put the info to listen to the rest of the book in the show notes and on Jenny's website. You can also go to JennyAllen.com to download the free Get Out of Your Head virtual book club kit. It will help you just walk through step by step how you can invite a few friends. It doesn't even have to be people you know that well. And you can gather each week online. I I know I'm using Zoom. A lot of people are using Google Hangouts, FaceTime. And we've made this guide that has questions and episodes you can listen to of the podcast, free downloads and worksheets. It's all there for you. So here you go. Here are chapters one and two from Get Out of Your Head. Chapter one, thinking about thinking. Take every thought captive. They say authors write books for two reasons. Either the author is an expert on the subject, or the subject makes the author desperate enough to spend years finding the answers. The latter most definitely describes me. This morning, I woke up intending to write to you, but first, I thought I need to spend some time with God. So, what did I do? I picked up my phone. I noticed an email about something I was working on, in which the sender was constructively critical of my work. Just as I decided to set my phone down, something else stole my attention. And the next thing I knew, I was on Instagram, noticing others' wins and glories contrasted with my work in process that seemed to not be measuring up. In minutes, with my phone, I decided that I was an inadequate writer, I was spending my life chasing things that mean nothing because I am nothing, I have nothing to say. I was spiraling fast into discouragement. Then my husband, Zach, came in happy, having just met with God, and I snapped at him. My spiral began to spin faster and more chaotically. In less than an hour, I had diminished myself, criticized all my work, decided to quit ministry, ignored God, and pushed away my greatest advocate and friend. Wow. Brilliant, Jenny. And that was only this morning? And now you want to try to help me with my chaotic thoughts? Well, I hear you. And I imagine all my life I will be in process with this. But because of the discoveries I get to share with you here, instead of my spiral stealing a day, a week, a few years, just an hour into it, there was a shift in my thinking. I did not stay paralyzed. I am free and joyful in writing to you. I want you to know that you do not have to stay stuck either. God built a way for us to escape the downward spiral, but we rarely take it. We've bought the lie that we are victims of our thoughts rather than warriors equipped to fight on the front lines of the greatest battle of our generation, the battle for our minds. The Apostle Paul understood the war that takes place in our thoughts, how our circumstances and imaginations can become weapons that undermine our faith and hope. The Bible records his bold declaration that we are to 
Take every thought captive to obey Christ. Take every thought captive? Is that possible? Have you ever tried? Once a bird flew into our tiny house and wouldn't fly out, it took more than an hour for our whole family working together to catch that silly little sparrow. Shooting the bird with a BB gun? Easy. But capturing the wild sparrow flying through our house was an altogether different task, a nearly impossible one. How much more impossible to capture a wild thought on the fly? Yet the book I build my life on is telling me to capture all my thoughts, every one of them. Is God serious? Is this even possible? Because honestly, my thoughts run wilder than that hyperactive sparrow. And yours do too. I see the same wild chaos in your eyes and those of nearly every woman I meet. Like the young woman in so much pain who sat across from me this week, drowning in anxiety she has been fighting for two years. She looked at me pleading, Help, tell me what to do. I don't want to live anxious. She said, I'm in counseling. I'm in Bible study. I'm willing to take medicine. I want to trust God. Why can't I change? Why do I feel so stuck in this? Goodness, I relate and have fought the same thing. It's incredible if you think about it. How can something we can't see control so much of who we are, determine what we feel and what we do and what we say or don't, dictate how we move or sleep and inform what we want, what we hate, and what we love? How can the thing that houses all those thoughts, just a bunch of folded tissue, contain so much of what makes us who we are? Learning to capture our thoughts matters because how we think shapes how we live. The patterns that keep us stuck. The subject of neuroscience has captivated me for years now, ever since one of my brilliant daughters began educating me on the science of the brain. When Kate, now a junior in high school, was in seventh grade, she came home from school one afternoon and announced to the rest of us, her two brothers, her sister, my husband Zach, and me, that she was going to cure Alzheimer's disease someday. We smiled. But years later, she still is reading books and articles on the subject, listening to every TED Talk on the brain, sharing research with me. Things like, Did you know that more has been discovered about our minds in the last 20 years than in all the time before that? Did you know that an estimated 60 to 80% of visits to primary care physicians have a stress-related component? Did you know that research shows us that 75 to 98% of mental physical, and behavioral illness comes from one's thought life. Did you know that with what we know about the brain today, when scripture's talking about the heart, it really could be talking about the mind and the emotions we experience in our brains? Well, no, Kate, I did not. But that's very interesting. The truth is, it is interesting to me. Somewhere along the way, Kate's fascination became mine too. Because she taught me that what she is learning in science is also scattered throughout my Bible. And many of the truths in the Bible concerning our thought lives have been backed up by science. This all became increasingly important to me as I became gripped by the idea that taking control of our minds could be the key to finding peace in the other parts of our lives. For several years, I'd been in deep running If Gathering, the organization I believe God prompted me to start to disciple women and equip them to go disciple others. I loved our community, our gatherings and the impact we seemed to be having. 
But over time, I noticed a troubling trend among the women I loved and served every day. Women would feel conviction at an event or as they worked through our discipleship resources, and they would surrender their lives more fully to Jesus. They would soar on the wings of that resolve for a week, a month, sometimes a year or even two. But inevitably, at some point, they'd slip back into old habits, old patterns of doing life. Maybe you know exactly what I mean. Maybe right now you're thinking of that toxic relationship you finally got out of, but then in a weak moment, resumed. Or you finally found peace about a less than desirable season of your life, but now your emotions have spiraled downward again, and all you do is complain. Or you were convicted about your porn habit and stopped, only to slip back into the habit weeks later. Or you recognized a pattern of being critical of your spouse, surrendered it, and truly started to change just before you circled back to where you began. Why, I wondered, don't the changes so many women desperately want to make stick over the long haul? And why did I struggle with some of the same fears, negative patterns, and other sins that I had been fighting for years? Even as I observed this boomerang effect on a broad level, I was also in relationship with dear friends, women I knew well, who seemed to battle the same issues year after year. Each time we'd get together, I'd hear the same song, 500th verse. What prevented them from thriving? Why couldn't they get unstuck? Kate's discoveries as she continued to study the brain suggested one strong possibility. It's all in our heads. Breaking the spiral. There is much we don't know about the brain, but what's also true, like Kate says, we've learned more about the brain in the past 20 years than we knew for the previous 2,000. We once thought of the mind as an immutable thing. The brain you were born with and the way it worked or didn't was just how it was. No sense fretting over what couldn't be changed. We now know that the brain is constantly changing, whether or not we intend for it to. In hopes of discovering how women can break free from our problematic patterns, I started picking up heady books about the mind and about neuroscience and about how real change occurs. I watched TED Talks that Kate pointed me toward about our brain's plasticity. I listened to brainy podcasts. I watched brainy documentaries. I talked to brainy people. I began to see a pattern at work in many of us. Our emotions were leading us to thoughts, and those thoughts were dictating our decisions, and our decisions were determining our behaviors, and then the behaviors were shaping our relationships, all of which could take us back to either healthy or unhealthy thoughts. Round and round and round we would go, spinning down, seemingly out of control. Our lives became defined by these endless cycles. Depressing, unless, unless there is a way to interrupt it. How many of us are spending all our energy in conversations and counseling and prayer trying to shift the most visceral thing about us, our emotions, yet having no success? If you feel sad and I tell you to quit feeling sad, Has any progress been made? What if instead of spending our energy trying to fix the symptoms, we went to the root of the problem, deeper even than the emotions that seem to kick off our cycles? The reality is that our emotions are a byproduct of something else. Our emotions are a byproduct of the way we think. Imagine there is a downward spiral. That is our thought. It begins with an emotion, then loops to our thoughts, 
which then spiral to behaviors and then affect relationships, all of which has consequences. What's good about this news is that we can change our thinking. The Bible tells us so. One verse in Romans 12, 22 states this, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. My deep dive into the inner workings of the brain confirmed what the Bible says we can take every thought captive. Not only can our thoughts be changed, but we can be the ones to change them. The problem is, we get on this spiraling train, often unaware of where our thoughts could actually lead. The well-known Puritan theologian John Owen said that the enemy's goal in every sin is death. His actual words were, be killing sin or it will be killing you. It's time for us to fight. The average person has more than 30,000 thoughts per day. Of those, so many are negative that according to researchers, the vast majority of the illness that plague us today are a direct result of our toxic thought lives. This spiral is real and stuffed with more thoughts than it seems we can manage. But what if, instead of trying to take every thought captive, we took just one thought captive? What if I told you that one beautiful, powerful thought could shift this chaotic spiral of your life for the better? Every time you thought it. What if you could grab a hold of one truth that would quiet the flurry of untruths that has left you feeling powerless over your brain? One thought to think. Could you do that? Such a thought exists. Okay, more on that later. I understand that despite the straightforward nature of my ask, that you take hold of one truth to focus your mind. Fulfilling it is no small thing. Why? Because a full-fledged assault is taking place in those folds of tissue that make you who you are. The greatest spiritual battle of our generation is being fought between our ears. What we believe and what we think about matters, and the enemy knows it, and he is determined to get in your head to distract you from doing good, to sink you so deep that you feel helpless, overwhelmed, shut down, and incapable of rising to make a difference for the kingdom of God. Even if you're one of those who won't be shut down and you are loving God and people as you go, a million toxic thoughts haunt you each step of the way. Whether you find yourself shut down or just haunted by nagging discontentment, here is my declaration on behalf of both you and me. No more. And I say on behalf of both you and me for a reason. The great irony is that while I thought God was directing me to all this great groundbreaking information, how my friends could heal their lives by healing their brains and by thinking more thoughtfully about their thoughts so that I could help everyone else. What I couldn't possibly have known at the time was that I was about to need this healing myself. Chapter two, what we believe. At least I'm not as dumb as her. These words were spoken behind my back by Derek in my sophomore biology class. Derek was three times the size of every other awkward 15-year-old in my grade, a guy everyone feared. I was a shy, quiet student who barely opened my mouth. How could he possibly find me dumb? The thing was, I wasn't dumb. I made all A's and a few B's with little effort, even in the most academically challenging classes. I looked back at that sophomore girl sitting there at that long science lab table, and I wish I could hold her face and tell her how not dumb she is. But I'm not sure she would listen. 
Within an hour of Derek saying she was dumb, those tiny folds of tissue between her ears had built an entire case against her value, her security, her intellect, and her potential that would play on repeat for a decade to come. A recent college grad with a degree in broadcast journalism, I was interviewing for a job at a news station. Two men from the station took my friend and me to dinner. They didn't want to talk about the job. They wanted to get to know us. After realizing they were hitting on us, I sat there and thought, I will never be taken seriously in business by men. That thought made me believe I did not have anything to offer as a woman in business. I built a case against my education, training, and gifts that would affect me for years to come. My husband and I found ourselves in one of our first real fights as a newly married couple. He ignored me, and I slammed some doors pretty hard. He moved on, but I couldn't stop thinking he doesn't really love me. And my mind started to build a case against our marriage. After losing my temper with my eight-year-old son, I lay in bed later that night and thought, I am failing as a parent. For years off and on, that thought twisted its way deeper into my mind. The thing is, I have always believed lies, and not just believed them, but built entire chapters of my life around them. I'm pretty sure the same is true for you. Lies we believe. My friend Christina, a licensed therapist, tells me that Psych 101 teaches therapists that when you and I choose to believe a lie about ourselves, it's one of these three lies we believe. I am helpless. I am worthless. I am unlovable. Reflexively, I try to prove her wrong. Seriously, Christina? Only three? I told her I've been known to believe 300 lies about myself in a day. Nope, she said. Each one of those 300 lies fits into one of these three. For the sake of argument, let's assume that Christina is right. The question I have for you is this. Which of the three do you most relate to? Is there one you're most vulnerable to? These lies, I am helpless, I am worthless, I am unlovable, shape our thinking, our emotions, and the way we respond to the world around us. They trap us in their cycle of distraction and distortion and pain, preventing us from recognizing the truth we should believe. Most detrimentally, they change how we view God. Every lie we buy into about ourselves is rooted in what we believe about God. Let's say I tend to feel worthless and invisible. And let's say I read Ephesians and learn that God, because he deeply loves me, chooses me and adopts me. Even if I don't overtly deny the validity of this premise, I still doubt it's true for me. I nod at the truth but I never fully absorb it and let it shape my identity. Then let's say I'm married to a spouse who is typically distracted with work. I don't feel seen in our marriage, which confirms my deep-seated fear that I am, indeed, worthless and invisible. So even in the most inconsequential of arguments with my husband, I feel anxious and start to spin every time he's short with me. I can't see all that he has on his shoulders. I can't empathize with his stresses, and my needs exceed his ability to ever meet them. Before long, we are full-on fighting constantly, and we don't even know why. My husband now has become the enemy in my mind and can't ever seem to say what I need to hear or be whom I need him to be. 
and the spiral of my thoughts has now invaded my relationships and robbed me of joy and peace. No human is ever meant to be the person who fills our souls or holds in place our worth. Only God can do that. But until I throw off the lie that God's love isn't for me, my emotions, decisions, behaviors, and relationships will remain twisted up in the mistaken belief that I'm worthless. When we begin to think about our thoughts, perhaps for the first time, we can stop the downward spiral. We can reset and redirect them. That's our hope. Not that we would wrestle each and every fear, but that we would allow God to take up so much space in our thinking that our fears will shrink in comparison. I love the quote from A.W. Tozer that says, If God is exalted, a thousand minor problems will be solved at once. Sign me up. I want that. Want to know a secret? We can have that. But please know that the enemy of our souls has no intention of releasing his grip on our minds without a fight. And let me tell you, he doesn't play fair. Here, we are just getting to know each other, and I'm about to let you in on some of the worst mental hell I've experienced. And I'm preparing you now because it's heavy, and I don't much like heavy. I like fun and happy things. But if I don't take you into the darkness with me, then you might not believe me when I say that it is well worth the effort to face the recesses of our thoughts, believing that God can bring about life and peace. I know this is possible. This shifting of our thoughts and in turn our lives, I know because it's happened for me. But before I discovered the thought that shifts us from turmoil to peace, I experienced the all-out attack of the enemy. Under Attack It was my first visit back home to Little Rock in several months. As I sat in the passenger seat of my mom's white SUV, I took in the familiar landmarks, my old high school, the Chili's restaurant my friends and I frequented after football games and basketball games, and the pool I always swam in growing up. I was reminded of just how comforting coming home can be. Soon we arrived at our destination, a Baptist church, where I was scheduled to deliver two talks with a book signing event sandwiched between. During my first talk, I swung for the fences with the women seated before me. I was bold and clear in my presentation of the gospel message. I told the few thousand women gathered, there's a real enemy with demons at his beck and call. He wants to take you out. He's determined to steal your faith. I ached for them to experience the freedom Christ offers and for them to refuse to sleepwalk through their lives. After that came the book signing with the expected hubbub, Afterward, I somehow found myself standing totally alone, something I try to avoid at large events for the sake of personal safety. The participants had already headed back into the auditorium to take their seats. Conference organizers were buzzing around, tending to details, and staff were all covering their various posts. There I stood in the foyer, just me and one other person, a kind-looking woman I didn't know. I realized I needed to get moving and find my seat ahead of the next session, which was about to start. I took two steps toward the auditorium when suddenly that kind-looking woman was in my face. Her expression darkened. Her warm smile disappeared. Her eyes narrowed as she focused intently on me. We are coming for you, she said in an urgent whisper. You need to quit talking about us. We are coming for you. Her comments were so out of context that I couldn't sort out what she meant. Ma'am, I said, I'm confused. What are you talking about? With chilling certainty, she said, you know exactly what I'm talking about. I'm sorry, I said, still seeking clarity. 
She repeated, quit speaking of us. I don't know what you're talking about, I said. Again, she said, you know exactly what I'm talking about. But I didn't. And then I did. I took several steps backward, turned toward the auditorium, approached one of the security guards who'd been asked to cover the event, and said with as much composure as I could muster, the woman who's in the foyer just made threats against me. Can you please keep an eye on her? Moments later, I took the stage and began my last talk. Partway through, I heard shrieking in the hallway that ran alongside the large auditorium. The tiny hairs on my arm stood on end as I briefly paused. I knew exactly who was screaming, and I knew exactly what this was about. Figuring the security personnel would take care of the distraction, I launched back into my talk. This was just a crazy woman making empty threats. I would go home and forget all about it. Then the devil overplayed his hand. While the woman was screaming bloody murder in the foyer, the power went out. I'm talking all the lights, the entire sound system, the giant screens behind me, everything. We were silent there in the dark. Did I mention this was a huge megachurch with backup systems for its backup systems? On a sunny day during a heavily staffed event, the power doesn't just go out. The screaming continued as we all listened, stunned. This has never happened before, the pastor of the church would later tell me. The screaming you heard was that woman you pointed out to the guard and her daughter. What was this all about? Dang. I mean, I proclaim Jesus, and I believe everything he taught. He taught about the enemy and showed his power over demonic forces. The enemy wasn't mysterious to Jesus. To him, spiritual warfare was matter of fact. Jesus cast out demons regularly. That's what the Bible says. But while I believe there is a real devil and that he has real demons working for him and that a battle for our hearts and souls and minds is playing out all around us all the time, I'll tell you this. I'd never before seen such an undeniable manifestation of Satan's work. The experience could have been terrifying, but instead it had a different outcome initially. It made me wild with faith. I vividly remember that night. I talked about Jesus with everyone who would listen, including the waiter at the restaurant my family and I went to afterward and my sister's friends who happened to be in town. I was overwhelmed with how real and true it all was. God, heaven, the enemy, this war we're in. I'd never before been as sure as I was that day. All of this is true. True.